Hello, everyone, and welcome back to I'm Not the Book Expert, but she is, and I am your first host, Rachel. I'm not the expert. And I'm... Oh, I cut you off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're good. God. I'm... You're good. <laughs> and did you just say I'm God? Yes, that is how it came out the first time. That is incorrect, but I appreciate the sentiment. You're welcome. I am not God, but I am your second host, Maggie. Welcome to the podcast. More importantly, you are in fact the expert. I am the expert. I may not be God, but I am the expert in this sentence. (laughs) Now I'm messing everything up. We are talking about Percy Jackson and the Battle of the Labyrinth. Part two. This is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, um, you might be confused. But you know what? I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I am often confused, just generally well, in life. That make I mean, yeah, that sounds fair. Rachel, what have you been reading lately since the last time we recorded? Uh, so some of this is the last time we recorded. Some of this is after the last time we record, or before the last time we recorded. It's just books I've enjoyed recently. So Tell me some good- books you read. Yes, all good people's here. All good people's. Oh my goodness, all good you people. Want to try that again. Yeah. All Good People Here by Ashley Flowers, Murder Mystery Adult, Once Upon a Broken Heart by Stephanie Garber, YA, Marple and Agatha Christie Collection with a bunch of authors. I really liked that. I thought it was really cool. Uh, Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi. And then today. Today. Today, I finished an advanced reader copy of Nine Liars by Maureen Johnson. And I'm really excited about it. I have a review for it, but I am not saying anything really about it until after the HarperCollins strike is over. Yes, until HarperCollins gets their crap together and gives the union folks what they need because they are literally not asking for much and HarperCollins is still being jerks about it. So anyway, 100%. if you don't know about the HarperCollins strike, it might, it'll probably, um, well... I don't want to say anything prognostic. It may or may not still be going on by the time this episode is released. Um, Let's hope it's not still going on at that point. For good reasons. Let's hope that they have come to an agreement by the time this episode is released. But you should read up about it. I don't have the website or the social media in front of me right now. But if you just Google like HarperCollins strike, you should be able to find resources about it. It's good to be informed about what's going on in the publishing world. Indeed, because that directly influences the reading world. Yes, (laughs) it does. You could not have a more direct relationship. Yes. Well, Rachel, I know you didn't ask, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Here's what I've been reading recently. I totally forgot. I'm sorry. I'm the worst. Just the worst. Um, I read the Wolves of Mercy Falls trilogy by Maggie Stiefvater. So that's the three books are Shiver, Linger, and Forever. Um, I like Maggie Steve Otter. These books were good. I think I probably would have liked them more if I read them when I was in the target audience for them, but I am recognizing that I am not in the target audience for them. And I think they're still good books. They were nice, like easy reads, which is something that I needed recently. Um, I've also continued listening to the Wayward Children series by Sean and McGuire. So that's the first book is Every Heart a Doorway. Don't ask me the rest of the titles in order because I can only remember some of them. But I have read, I have read everything up until, how many books are there out right now? Seven? Because the eighth book comes out in January. Correct. So I have read all seven books, not counting like the short stories that take place in between them. 
Um, I very highly recommend that series. I'm trying to get Rachel to agree to do a season on them sometime because I think we should. Do you think that's a hard sell? No, I just... I think that would We've be a season... We've got a lot of other ideas. Yes, I think that that would be a season, though, where we would alternate yeah. who was the expert. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have some where I would want to be the expert. I know you do. I called dibs on the first book. That is fine, so long as I get Lundy's book and Beyond the Sugar mm-hmm. Sky. That is fine. Okay. Glad we're right. in agreement. <laughs> Glad we're in agreement for this season that may or may not ever happen. It will not be our next season. We can say that with season. confidence. Yes. Um, I also read volume one of Monstrous, which is a comic graphic novel series. Um, that's by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. I read I Was Born for This by Alice Oseman. And I read Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. Um, I really, I especially enjoyed I Was Born for This and Legends and Lattes, mostly for completely different reasons, but they were both like very good books, like top contenders for favorite books of the last month. So Maggie, is there any new PJO TV news going on? There is, in fact. Um, We have gotten a lot of casting news so I'm going to run through that first. Um, there are two in particular that I think we're going to pause and talk about. So let me begin with, we got three major, three pretty major characters cast. Um, we have Jessica Parker Kennedy as Medusa, Suzanne Cryer as Echidna, and Adam Copeland as Ares. So those three all got announced at the same time so we know who our like main antagonist is going to be at least for the first season of pjo because that's kind of the role that aries plays right or maybe well i was gonna say maybe that's a spoiler if you've listened this far in the podcast you know that already indeed and then a couple weeks later at the beginning of november we got this kind of random out of the blue announcement that hermes has been cast um, and Hermes will be played by none other than Lin-Manuel Miranda himself of Alexander Hamilton fame and the internet had some feelings about that I think that is an understatement yeah I think this is I don't think it's over, overstating it to say that this is the most controversial casting aside from maybe Leah Jeffries as Annabeth, but for totally different reasons. Correct. The controversy with Leah is much more racially driven. The controversy with Leah is much more people being racist jerks. Yes, that was much nicer and, than what I would say. Yes, and trying to hide their racism behind book accuracy. The controversy with Lynn manuel Miranda is more meme I guess. Like, it's more of a meme, and like, well, now I know sure. why Luke joined the dark side and all this stuff. Yes. But the one thing that I thought was interesting from that post was uh, Hermes does not appear in The Lightning Thief. And in the post, Rick Riordan says, now you book fans might be thinking, wait a minute, Hermes doesn't appear until the second book, The Sea of Monsters. You are correct. 
But remember when I told you we are adding new glimpses of backstory, Easter eggs, and other nuances to enhance the narrative while remaining true to the original storyline? This is a prime example. When you see the episode in question, it will make sense why we introduced Hermes early. And if I'm allowed to theorize just a little bit. No. There was a... (laughs) What was that? No. Do you want to lo- do you want to run the show, Rachel? No. <laughs> okay, then I'm going to continue. There was a photo that was only up for a little bit, and then I think they realized it revealed too much, and then they took it down. But it showed um, Rick and Lin Manuel Miranda standing on set, presumably in what looked like could be the set of the Lotus Hotel. So, and then it was quickly taken down. So I actually can't link to it anymore. I can't find it. But I think Hermes is going to show up at the Lotus Hotel. That is my theory. I don't really have much to go on other than this photo that looks like it may have been there. But it also very well could have been like the hotel that everyone is staying at while they're filming. Like, it could be nothing. It could be something. We won't know until the show comes out, basically. Which makes sense. Yes. And we have two more casting announcements. Rachel, do you want to talk about these? So the first one we have is Hades, which we all know that I love Hades. That's just a statement of fact. And that is Mm -hmm. Jay Duplass. Duplass? Duplass? I I have no idea. (laughs) I think it's Duplass. D-U-P-L-A-S-S. I think it's Duplass. Uh, He... There was a lot of pushback on his casting. People didn't think he was... Yes, people didn't think he was, like, grungy enough to be Hades or, like, harsh enough. Like, they thought he was too attractive and too nice. Okay, here's my pushback against that. You know how they cast um, Henry Cavill as Geralt in The Witcher? Yes. And, like, he does not look like someone who would play Geralt. Like, unless, like, aside from in costume. Like, I think it's the same vibe like like almost too pretty to be like grungy character but i think they're going to make it work i don't think they would cast him if they didn't think they were going to make it work oh for sure i think that this is a great casting i thought he was great yeah however the one that i am more than excited for because i don't know what word to use instead is for hephaestus And for a little bit of a reminder for everyone who maybe isn't up to date on their Greek mythology, Hephaestus is a disabled god. Right, because he was, as we find out in Battle of the Labyrinths, when we meet him, he was tossed off Mount Olympus by, I believe in Percy Jackson lore, it's Hera, but in some stories it's either Hera or Zeus, depending on who you ask. But he was chucked off a mountain and is... Disabled. disabled as a result so in the potentially i'm not so hot take for me but maybe hot take for others the best casting of the season other than the main three mm-hmm. we have timothy odmanson who you might know from several things but i think one of his biggest roles is probably psych right i would say so he is detective lassiter on psych 
and has also played several other like pretty i would say fairly major tv roles like yeah nothing that i have watched but like other things that i at least know about which is saying something because i don't know a lot of tv but i love him and he is a disabled actor. Several years ago, yes. he suffered from a stroke that has left him with some permanent damage. And he's been on his road to recovery with it. And he is now playing a disabled character. And I have pretty much only heard good things about this casting from people in the disability community and people who are aware of this situation. I've heard mm-hmm. a couple of critiques from people, again, saying that he's too attractive to play Hephaestus. Okay, I just want people to, this is a bit of a tangent, but like Hollywood's fixation on attractive people is a whole other discussion, but Hollywood doesn't like unattractive people. Correct. The fact that that is a thing is a whole different problem altogether. That is not going to be solved by the time casting for Percy Jackson needs to happen. Correct. It also. Also, attraction is subjective. Oh, 100%. Like, maybe everybody needs to stop being so thirsty. That's my take. Also, my rebuttal is they are literally Greek gods. Yeah, like, even the (laughs) quote-unquote... Hephaestus is, like, the quote-unquote, and this is a whole issue, too, like, ugly god. Like, that is still a Greek god. Right. I just... I can't. (laughs) Yeah. They're, They're, uh... It is something, to say the least. It is something. But I saw, I I knew Rachel was a fan of Timothy Omenson, and I saw the casting first, and I almost called her in the middle of the workday, but I was like, she's probably (laughs) teaching a class. But I texted her, and I was like, Rachel, you have to look at this right now, immediately. Like, you cannot, this cannot wait. And I did, in fact, like, flip out. Yes. I'm so excited. I am so glad. I think of like the side characters, I think that might be my favorite casting as well. Partly because it's an actor that I am familiar with, but also because I I am very heartened to see a disabled actor playing a disabled character, which like you wouldn't think that would be such a radical thing, but boy, oh boy, is that a radical thing. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be a radical thing. It should not be, correct. And yet here we are. And just something else related to casting. That's all the casting we have as of the time of this recording. Um, But we also know that Zeus and Poseidon have been cast, but they have not been able to announce them yet for whatever contract reasons, something, something legal, whatever. Um, We do know that there is going to be no crossover casting between the original movies and the TV show. So all of you people who are saying Logan Lerman as Poseidon, stop. I get it. It's a nice headcanon. We like Logan Lerman. He's a delightful human being, I'm sure. He's not coming back. Stop. Honestly, I'm not disappointed by that. Um, And then just some other random TV show updates. Um, They celebrated Leah's 13th birthday on set. She got some shoes. There's a photo of her opening her gift that's really adorable. Um, They've filmed up as of the time that posted, which was by now a couple months a couple weeks ago um they had filmed up through chapter 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 Chapter. 16 of the book they have filmed some of the lotus hotel and rick says they added 
Lots of fun details, new scenes, and Easter eggs that will make the experience even better. I am holding out hope to see some D'Angelo siblings at the Lotus Hotel. I don't think it's going to happen, but I will be ecstatic if it does. Or at least some kind of reference to them, maybe. Because they had to have been there when Percy was there. Mm Mm-hmm. They were almost certainly, there's no reason why they wouldn't have been there. If they hadn't been at the, at the Lotus Hotel when Percy was there, they would have been found sooner than the Titan's Curse. Right. It just becomes a little anachronistic. Yeah. So I don't know if we'll see them like in the flesh, so to speak, but it might be interesting to hear. I I don't know. I'm curious to know what he means by Easter eggs. There's so many options that could, that it could be. So, you know, the crossover that nobody is calling for between the movies and the TV show. Uh huh. Actually, that is a lie. There are some people that are calling for it. But the Mm -hmm. continued use of poker face by Lady Gaga in that scene. (laughs) I would appreciate it because I think that would be funny. However, given the target audience of the show, I don't think they would do it because I don't think the target audience would find it funny. Oh, probably not at all. None I, of these children were, like, alive then. Okay, okay, okay. Hear me out. Hearing Ready? you out. Have an instrumental version that plays in the elevator at the Lotus Hotel. I do like that. And there's some other, like, posts on Rick's blog that have some behind-the-scene details of the filming and production process that I'm not going to get into right now. But it's interesting if that's something that's of interest to you. That was a poorly structured sentence, but that's fine. And just an update on other Riordanverse film projects. The newest draft of the the Pyramid Red... Of the Red Pyramid script has been turned in and progress is being made on the Daughter of the Deep script. So both of those movies are still in production and are moving along as scheduled. I have a really niche uh, complaint. Sure. They really messed up for when the Red Pyramid should have come out. Why do you say that? The Red Pyramid should have come out this year. Because Carter is named after Howard Carter, who discovered King Tut's tomb in the ni- in 1922. This year was uh, 100 years from the discovery of King Tut's tomb. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's not your failing. I mean, if you want them to, they can wait 50 years and do it 150 year anniversary. I would <coughs> rather not. I would be 77. Oof. (laughs) I'm just trying to give you options here, Rachel. Just saying. So, Maggie. Rachel. Do we want to do our trigger warnings before we go into our summary since our summary is a bit longer? Yes. Let's. So, content warnings real quick for Battle of the Labyrinths. We talked about them in the last episode. We're going to talk about them again here. Um, Content warnings for ableism, death, depression, Fire, grief, loss of loved ones, manipulation, PTSD, sexism, skeletons, suicide is mentioned. There's also torture, violence, and war are all themes or things that come up in this book. So if those things will are concerning to you, um, just be mindful of that as we talk about this book and 
because those things will likely come up in conversation. Mm -hmm. So Rachel, do you want to get started? I would love to. The second half of the Battle of the Labyrinth begins with Percy waking up on the mysterious island of Ogigia, inhabited by an immortal sorceress, Calypso. Though Percy is initially weary of Calypso, the two become friends and Percy spends several days recovering on Ogigia. Calypso tells Percy he can stay as long as he likes and that she can even make him immortal, which is a tempting offer. However, when he learns that his friends are still in danger, he leaves the island and returns to Camp Half-Blood just in time to crash his own funeral. After checking in with Sally, Annabeth and Percy dive back into the labyrinth, this time with the help of Rachel Dare, Percy's clear-sighted mortal friend. The trio is quickly captured by Luke's minions, and they're brought to an arena where Percy is forced to battle Ethan Nakamura, a rogue demigod. When Percy chooses to spare Ethan instead of kill him, he angers Antaeus, the arena's champion. Antaeus is a powerful son of Poseidon and Gaia, but Percy manages to defeat him and the heroes, plus Ethan, escape the arena together, though Ethan parts ways with them soon after. Percy, Annabeth, and Rachel arrive at Daedalus's workshop where they find, find Quintus, their combat instructor. Quintus reveals himself to be Daedalus, having managed to survive for a millennia by transferring his soul from one mechanical body to another. Daedalus claims that Camp Half-Blood is a lost cause and refuses to help the heroes, but it isn't long before Luke's forces attack the workshop and Nico shows up with his ally, Minos. In the midst of the fight, Daedalus changes his mind about the heroes and helps Percy, Annabeth, Rachel, and Nico escape using the set of wings he invented. Once again, everyone enters the labyrinth. This time, they're led to Mount Othyrus, where Percy witnesses Kronos awaken in Luke's body. They narrowly escape thanks to Rachel's blue hairbrush, and Nico uses his abilities to block their enemies from following them back into the labyrinth. They're reunited with Tyson and Grover, and at long last, our heroes meet the god Pan, who isn't doing so well. After speaking with everyone and giving his blessing to Grover, Pan fades away. Percy and the others return to camp, where everyone is preparing for battle. The tide of the battle goes back and forth between the campers and the forces of Kronos, but ultimately Camp Half-Blood is victorious. In the aftermath, Daedalus sacrifices himself to destroy the labyrinth, and a funeral is held for the fallen demigods. Mr. D returns to camp. Grover reports to the council that Pan is dead, and the campers try to regain some sense of normalcy for the rest of their summer. The book closes with Percy celebrating his birthday back home with Sally, Paul, and Tyson. Poseidon makes a rare appearance and offers Percy a gift of a sand dollar before disappearing once again. As Percy reflects on the events of the summer, he's surprised to find Nico on the fire escape outside of his apartment. Nico starts to tell him that he's found a way to defeat Luke and Kronos, but before they can talk further, Percy invites him in for cake. They have a lot to talk about. <laughs> They're just babies. They are just babies. I think the first thing I want to talk about here is let's start with Percy and Annabeth's relationships. Or nope, Percy and Annabeth's relationship. There we go. Singular. Um, yes. They're still going through it. They've got a lot going on here. There was that whole like kiss at the at the volcano when then they're separated and Percy ends up with Calypso and Calypso clearly has a crush on him and Percy's just very oblivious to this whole thing. He's like, well, she's pretty, but like, you know, 
it it's a whole mess. There's like a love quadrangle going on here. Yes. But one of the things that we notice is Percy, even in his sort of exile on Ojigia, he is still thinking about Annabeth. Like he's looking up at the sky and seeing the constellations and remembering all the ones that Annabeth taught him about and like seeing the one that Zoe became at the end of the Titan's curse. And (laughs) you good there, Rachel? Yeah. I'm sorry. I I it's fine. Are we gonna cry? Always. <laughs> okay. Um, and when they go to see Sally in New York City before they go to meet Rachel, not podcast Rachel, Rachel not there. Me. Not me. Yeah, didn't you know podcast Rachel is in this book? <laughs> you can't see Rachel, but she just did a little hair flip on both sides. Yes, I did. Uh, I actually really like Rachel, which is kind of a hot take in the Percy it's Jackson such a hot community. Take. People really hate Rachel. We we are going to have a talk about Rachel because I also really like Rachel, but a lot of people really hate her. A lot it's of not people... as bad. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was going to say it's not as bad as it used to be, but a lot of people hated Rachel like when Percy Jackson was first coming out, it was actually pretty toxic sometimes. A lot of people just hate Rachel because they see her as a threat to Annabeth. Like they think that, that Percy's going to fall in love with Rachel. And like, if that's what Rick wanted to do, then he could have done it because he is the author of this series. Yes. So it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. (laughs) People have problems. But anyway, before they go to meet Rachel Dare, um, they stop by the apartment and see Sally. And one of the first things Sally says is like, have you two been fighting? Like, Sally knows that everything is off. And like, Percy knows that everything is off. He just doesn't know why. Our boy's a bit thick. Yeah. I mean, he knows like Annabeth isn't happy about like going to meet this Rachel person, but they know they need her because she can see through the mist and that's what they need to navigate the labyrinth so Mm -hmm. annabeth knows it's necessary but she's clearly not happy about it and percy's like i don't know what's going on but i know the vibes are bad yeah and that just kind of continues through this half of the book and like towards the end after the battle like things are still kind of awkward between them one of the things i really wanted to say was at the end of the book Hera appears to them and tries to offer like some weird life lesson thing. We hate Hera. Hera is awful. Dislike. No, thank you. Um, And she kind of says something to Annabeth and Annabeth. um, Annabeth doesn't like it. And in Percy's mind, we hear Percy narrates. Annabeth looked just the way she had when she'd faced the Sphinx. Like she wasn't going to accept an easy answer, even if it got her in serious trouble. I realized that was one of the things I liked best about Annabeth. And then Annabeth tells off Hera and Hera gets pissed. Yeah, Hera's full of herself and I would rather eat gluten than be in a room with her. Yes, that's fair. And for those of you who don't understand why that is a major thing, I have celiac disease and therefore cannot eat gluten without getting severely ill. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, eat gluten while in a room with Hera and then like projectile vomit on her. 
There you go. Problem solved. Perfect. (laughs) This is a terrible hypothetical, but it's fine. It's a good hypothetical. But that's really all. I mean, I think I've talked at length about how I feel about Percy and Annabeth in this book. They're ju- how they're just kind of like things are awkward, things are tense, but they're always still there for each other. I don't think mm-hmm. I need to repeat myself. I guess I would agree but with that. Did you have anything you wanted to say about their relationship specifically? Um, Annabeth was super pissed off when Percy crashed his own funeral. Yes, I love she- it. She she yelled at him like, "Where have you been?" Right. It's Where like one of the few lines. Bean. Exactly. <laughs> it's one of the few lines in the books that's in all capital letters. Mm-hmm. I just love them. They're cute. I, I do too. They are very cute. Speaking of Annabeth and Rachel, though, um, she is like, I think people tend to gloss over this, but Annabeth and Rachel do connect on some level. Mm-hmm. Like they have a lot in common and not just the fact that they're both interested in Percy. Like, when Rachel mentions, right as they're entering the labyrinth, I think either Annabeth or Percy's like, don't you need to, like, tell your parents, like, that you're going to be gone? Or, like, aren't they going to worry? And Rachel's like, they're not going to give two rips about what happens to me. And Mm -hmm. I think that Annabeth soften a little bit, because if there's one thing Annabeth understands, it's issues with parents. Oh, for sure. So I think that kind of brings Annabeth around a little bit. And then later on, Percy mentions that the two of them are talking about art and architecture because those are both like their interests. And, you know, they're both like near New York City. So they have a lot to talk about with that. So like they do get along. I think it's just more of Annabeth is in this weird place with Percy And she's feeling kind of insecure, I think, especially after what happened at Mount St. Helens, right? Mm -hmm. And she's like, I did this thing and we're not talking about it. Did I do something wrong? Like, I think Annabeth is feeling a little bit insecure about her relationship. And she's a little bit more vulnerable to, here's what I would say. So Annabeth has been abandoned by everyone who cares about her essentially like that's that's not an overstatement like her family turned their backs on her like her dad basically abandoned her to remarry this mortal woman or not remarry i guess remarry marry this mortal woman who hated her and annabeth felt like he had chosen his new wife over her luke joins the forces of Kronos. Luke, the person who was with her even after she lost Talia, she basically loses Talia twice. First, when she sacrifices herself at Half-Blood Hill, and then again Mm -hmm. when Talia joins the Huntresses. Right. And now she's... First of all, she almost lost Percy. Like, she thought Percy was dead. D-E-A. And now... Yes. And now she thinks Percy is going to... When people leave you so often like that, that is a traumatic experience. Yes. And I'm not saying that justifies Annabeth's treatment of Rachel, but I think it makes it make sense. Yeah. Like it's no it's no fault of Rachel's, it's no fault of Percy's, but like she is seeing she is seeing like, oh, this pattern is going to repeat itself again, isn't it? I am not going to be like my friend is not even so much like my friend is going to choose a different romantic partner, but like my friend is choosing somebody else over me. Right. 
ending she's just with her fear. Very afraid of letting new people into her life or letting new people yeah. into the lives adjacent to her. Yes. Because she's afraid of being replaced. Mm-hmm. And considering that she has been replaced, like, several times, both before this series and after this series, that is a, that is not an irrational fear. Not at all. Is it still something that she needs to work through? Sure. Yes. But that doesn't, like, it's not, it is not an unreasonable fear. Right. She has a lot of stuff going on in her life. And, like, she's, what, 14? They're 14, yeah. So I, like... I think she'll be fine. Yes. And this is, this is, I don't know. I don't really remember much of being 14, if I'm being honest, but like, this feels like a very reasonable 14 year old life experience. 100%. As someone who has taught 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 16 year olds, 17 and 18 year olds, and a 19 year old, 100%. The only teen I haven't taught is 13. And I don't want to. I think that's fair. Do you want to talk about Percy? Let's talk about Percy. So when Hephaestus appears on Ojigia, this I don't really have much to say about this. When Hephaestus appears on Ojigia, Percy's like, whoa, I caused all that destruction? And Hephaestus says, you're the son of the earth shaker, lad. You don't know your own strength. And I think this is, like, we've always known Percy as a powerful demigod, like, son of the big three, blah, 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 whatever. Um, But I think this is one of the moments where, like, we see how terrifyingly scary Percy could be. Because, like, Percy just let loose in Mount St. Helens. He's like, well, I'm probably going to die anyway. Might as well go out with a bang and causes the volcano to explode. Go big or go home. Go big or go home. Um. Speaking of going home, another thing that he says is when he's leaving Ojigia, he he it's a magical raft. It will take him wherever he wants to go. And he says, take me to Camp Half-Blood, sail me home. Yeah. Which I just think is a nice little touch because Camp Half-Blood is home to him, even though he has a home with Sally and with Paul. Yes. Eventually, like Camp Half-Blood is also like home. It is where he knows he belongs um you good there yeah i'm fine you don't sound good i am fine it's fine are you sure yes i just i get really emotional about people feeling like they belong and that they're home yeah. Especially when they are teens and teens of groups that don't get recognized a lot. And like, yes, Percy mm-hmm. is a white boy, but he's a white boy with disabilities and with anger problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that just ang- anger problems, air quotes around anger problems. He does have anger problems, but do you understand what I am trying to say here? I understand what you're trying to say. He is someone who, by larger culture, is considered to have, quote-unquote, behavioral issues. Yes. And because of that, has often been ostracized by his peers. Yes, even though he really hasn't done a whole lot wrong. Right. Percy also, we know that Percy has a big heart. Um, 
But when he finds out more about what's going on with Chris Rodriguez, who is the demigod who went into the labyrinth and then Clarice found him and brought him back to Camp Half-Blood, but he's basically lost his mind. Mm -hmm. Um, He's Percy has learned that Clarice is very upset about what happened to Chris. And he sees Clarice in the training arena when he returns to camp. And he like, like they kind of banter, like tease each other back and forth and taunt each other as they normally do. But then Percy tells her that he's sorry about what happened to Chris. And like, he is genuine in saying that he's not saying like, he's not, he's not teasing her about that, which I think says a lot about Percy. And I think it says a lot about Clarice too, that she doesn't deflect with like anger or insults Mm -hmm. or trying to be like, what do you, why do you think I care? Like, she doesn't deflect the comment, even though she doesn't say, like, she doesn't say, like, yeah, it's whatever. Like, she doesn't really accept it, but she doesn't really, like, shrug it off either. Right. Um, I, and what she does... Go ahead. This is just when I started liking Clarice. Mm-hmm. I think she has grown a lot between, like, when we saw her last in Sea of Monsters and now, for sure. Mm-hmm. And when Percy apologizes, Clarice says, Yeah, well, sometimes things go wrong. Heroes get hurt, they they die, and the monsters just keep coming back. Which is like that line hits hard. Okay, so I have to confess something to the podcast um as we move on to our next character. Um I put Grover and Tyson on this list and wrote basically no notes for either of them. And I feel a little bit bad about that because they both play a very important role in this part of the story. I just didn't have any notes about that. It is an important role, but it is kind of a small role. Yeah, it it's vital, but it only really is like a chapter or two. Right. Because they go off on their own. So yeah, we're all reunited with... Tyson and Grover and it's the gang's all here and that's when they go and find Pan and all that stuff goes down. Grover's reaction to Pan dying I guess would be the word for it Mm -hmm. is very mature and I think it shows like we haven't seen Grover as much throughout this series for many reasons because like, you know, in Sea of Monsters, he was being held captive. In the Titan's Curse, he was on the quest, but he wasn't, like, Percy wasn't always with him for the quest. And here in this book, he's been on his own journey to find Pan. But we have seen his growth, and I think it kind of culminates in the moment when he sees Pan and kind of accepts that the god that he has been looking for for so long is basically no longer in existence. And I think it's nice I don't know if it's nice. Like it's it's a sad emotional moment, but it's nice to see Grover's growth. Say that three times fast. Grover's growth, Grover's growth, Grover's growth. Okay, rude. You said to do it. It was a hypothetical command. Do you mean more like a rhetorical question? It wasn't a question though. It was an implied question of can you say that? Don't host a podcast with a grammarian, everybody. Or an English teacher. Or both. <laughs> um, but speaking of Pan in the scene, just because I had this other note that kind of goes with it. Um, th- one of the things Pan says 
specifically to Grover, but all of our other heroes are in the room. He tells Grover that he needs to tell the other satyrs. He's like, you need to tell them that I am gone and I can't save them anymore. And the, the thing he says to Grover is the only salvation you must make yourself. And of course that applies to the satyrs because the satyrs have been waiting for their God basically to come back and fix the world and reverse what damage the humans have done to nature and to the wild. But I think it also applies to the heroes that we all see here too. It kind of works in both ways, like Percy and Annabeth and all of the other demigods and Tyson and Rachel have like, they all have worked really hard to get where they are already. But I think in some ways they are still sort of relying on, I think in some ways they are still relying on the gods or some like divine assistance in some way. And I think this is kind of Pan's way of saying, if you want things to change, you're going to have to do it yourself. If you keep kind of like, if you keep relying on the gods, nothing is really going to change, which is kind of a big deal, especially for a God to say that now. And again, he doesn't say that outright, but I think it is kind of implied there. For sure. Uh, The one thing that I really don't like about Pan is that he never actually addresses Nico. He does speak with Nico, but he doesn't address Nico right before he goes. Right. Unlike what he does with everyone else. When we're all like, no, Pan, you can't die. Nico kind of says like, no, this is part of like the cycle of life. And mm-hmm. like death is a thing that is a part of it. This isn't really, he's not even really alive anymore. This is just kind of like an after image, I think is how he puts it. Yeah. Or a memory. Kind of like um, a shadow. Yeah. And Pan says, your your friend here is correct. But that is the only time he speaks to Nico. Because right before he goes, he says something specific to each of the characters. He says, he addresses Grover the most. Mm -hmm. I believe he says something to Tyson and Percy and Annabeth and even Rachel, which is surprising because how does he know Rachel for uh, like apart from any other mortal? Not that she isn't special, but just like, how does he know? how, How does he recognize enough of her to address her in that way? And of course we, we find out shortly thereafter, but Nico is the only one he doesn't address and Nico doesn't really show it necessarily, but you can tell it kind of stings. And we'll talk more about that when we get to talking about Nico, but just it's kind of another thing that he feels isolates him from other demigods and other heroes. I'm so sorry to everybody who is listening to this recording and can hear my dog chewing on his corn chew toy. Uh, it's corn. Am, <laughs> it's corn. Uh, I am on dog duty tonight, and tonight was the only time we could make a recording happen. So it's how it happens. It's how it happens. Okay, let's talk about Tyson. Tyson. I did have one note for Tyson. I, I'm retconning my previous statement. I do have one note for Tyson um, because Briaris comes to Camp Half Blood to fight, and we find out that Tyson is the one who inspired him to like actually come back and fight and not just give up and be dejected about being the last of his kind. Um, And that's just a really sweet moment. And you can tell Tyson is really touched like hearing that because this is his hero, basically like other than I would say aside from Percy, this is the person who Tyson looks up to the most. 100%. So like, 
it, it gives me happy, good feelings. But Tyson, we know how I feel about Tyson. I love Tyson. I know you do. And I still love Tyson as of this book. Mm-hmm. He's so brave. He really is. They are all so brave, but Tyson is so brave. I just want to talk about Rachel really quick. We kind of already talked about her a little bit, but I had another point that I wanted to mention about her. Yeah. Um. So Quintus says to her, when they kind of first meet for the first time, Quintus, who we know is Daedalus, he says, you have clear vision, don't you? You remind me of a mor- another mortal girl I once knew, another princess who came to grief. And this is the first time that line really stuck out to me in all of my rereads of Percy Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting that he compares Rachel to Ariadne, right? Because mm-hmm. um, Rachel is, in a sense, a princess, right? We find out that her father is a gajillionaire, you know how I said death to Jeff Bezos earlier? Um, if Jeff Bezos was like a thing that we hated back when this book was written, that's who this man would be. He's a land developer and he's destroyed a lot of nature yeah. and like, yes. Or like an Elon Musk type, maybe. Maybe yeah. not quite as eccentric, but like about as much of a jerk. Yeah. Think of any major CEO mm-hmm. who... Pays zero attention to his family. Yes. And, like, will just put his child in a boarding school. Mm-hmm. And gives no thought to the welfare of other people outside of himself. Correct. Just I'm sure you can think of someone who fits that bill. Throws money at problems. Yeah. And usually makes them go away somehow. Go away. Yes, and by go away, we mean makes it somebody else's problem. Yes, or makes somebody else dead. Yes. It's great living in America. It's it's peachy. <laughs> Just Anyway, peachy. all that to say, I think it's a nice touch that Rachel plays the role of the princess here i just think it's a nice little analogy that works both in the sense that rachel and ariadne have clear sight in the percy jackson universe but also that they are this wealthy and privileged and in some ways powerful figure Mm -hmm. who gets to play a role in the narrative and kind of in some ways I, i can't speak as much for ariadne but like in some ways gets to redeem the story of her family yep and use the power that she has to help the heroes in their quest. But let's be real, not that Theseus was all that worth helping. Uh, Theseus goes on the same level as like Odysseus. I think Theseus is a little worse. I don't disagree, but I also think I dislike Odysseus more than you do. I feel like I dislike Odysseus a lot. I would not be disappointed at Odysseus's death. Oh, me neither. Okay, okay, let me put it this way. I find Odysseus a more interesting character. I don't think he's a better person. That is fair. I just find Odysseus like slightly more interesting and thereby slightly more tolerable than Theseus. I'm also very protective of Penelope. So like Valid. (laughs) 
Rachel, I know how you feel about Penelope, don't worry. Penelope deserves better. She does. She really does. Anyway, do you have anything else, Rachel? Do you have anything else to say about Rachel? I've always really liked Rachel, and not just because we share a name. Justice for Rachel. Justice for Rachel. Not that Rachel really needs justice in, like, the story world. I just mean, like, justice from the fans who all... Yeah, because they're all mean to her. There's a lot of people who are really mean about Rachel on the internet. And I was like, guys, she's not a real person. (laughs) Like, please focus your attention on things that are, like, actual issues in the world. Now we're going to talk about Rachel's other favorite character. I feel like everyone is Rachel's favorite character. That's not true. My my absolute favorite character, excluding Percy, is Nico. Is Nico. Actually, Nico. It, it might be Nico even with Percy in there, because I have two pictures of Nico on my computer and zero pictures of Percy. Seaweed brain is disappointed. <laughs> I think he'll get over it. Let's be real. If there was a child of the big three who would be my duckling... Not by their own choosing. It would be Nico. Yeah. By their own choosing, where I would be super confused, it would be Percy. Mm-hmm. Talia would just get dragged along. But Nico fits into the Venn diagram of my students. And if you are my yes. student and my duckling, you know what that Venn diagram is. So I'm not going to specify what it is. <laughs> if you know you know if you don't know don't worry about it right don't ask it's fine but nico is is probably my favorite yes and he's so good in this book like i think this is really i mean to be fair we didn't see much of nico in the titan's curse but i also think like this is really like his book in a way and how much nico goes through in this story um his character growth isn't really the focus of Battle of the Labyrinths. Like, he's a side character just like Annabeth or Grover or Tyson or Rachel. Like, Percy is the star of the show. We all know this. Mm-hmm. But Nico's growth really does exist in this book. And we see it a lot, as I mentioned earlier, in the encounter with Pan. Um, when Nico found out Bianca died at the end of the Titan's Curse, he was understandably very distraught and angry with Percy and or acted angry with percy and then when he confronts bianca bianca's like you're not angry with percy you're angry with me and you need to stop taking out your anger on someone who is innocent i made my choices and i'm sorry that i couldn't be there for you but this is how it is and even in that conversation with bianca that happened earlier um nico is still very upset and still kind of angry and again, that's very understandable. But by the time they meet, they all meet Pan, Nico has kind of accepted death as a part of life. Not that it's something that you look forward to or something that you desire to happen, mm-hmm. but he's he does kind of act like this is what things happen and this is how things happen. And that's just... You have to find a way to live with it. You can't change it by being angry about it. Correct. He's also much more powerful than we've seen him before. Like, he he has this confrontation with Minos Minos, um, his sort of ghostly friend who's been lingering around with him. 
And Nico finally says, like, no, you've been lying to me. You've been deceiving me. And Mino says, you can't fight against me. I'm the Ghost King. And Nico says, no, I am. And he basically, like, forces Minos back into the underworld. And it's like, we're done here. So, like, Ghost King Nico, 10 out of 10. We love to see it. I, I feel like Mushu and Mulan being like, my baby. Go to war. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I just... Nico becomes an actual part of the story in this book. Mm-hmm. He has a yes. little bit more agency in it than mm-hmm. in the last book. And it's nice to see that development even from a side character. Yes. And just kind of going off of that, like he has, he's there when they confront Kronos for the first time in Luke's body. Right. Mm-hmm. And he is the one who helps them escape. Like he creates a wall that prevents Kronos's armies from following them back into the labyrinth. And Percy's like, you just revealed who you are. You know, they're going to be after you now. And Nico's like, yeah, let them. I don't care. They can come after me all they want. And I think in that moment, that's when Nico has decided these are the people he's fighting alongside. Even if, you know, he's been mistreated by the gods, he's been mistreated by his fellow demigods, even by Percy to some extent. I'm going to call Percy out a little bit here. I don't think Percy intended to hurt Nico, but he still is kind of a part of how Nico has been hurt. And in, I would argue maybe even traumatized Mm-hmm. by the people who have been supposed to care for him but he's chosen them anyway and it doesn't matter like he he's not really choosing the gods he's choosing his friends and the people who have been there for him and whatever side they are on he is going to be standing by them if percy and annabeth suddenly decided we're fighting alongside chronos nico would join them in a heartbeat because those are his friends so the last big thing that we need to talk about when it comes to nico is some of the coding of his character, I guess you could say, because we don't have like an overt, like, here it is in this book when it comes to Nico. And I'm intentionally being vague. Um, Brief spoilers in the next like 10 seconds for the Heroes of Olympus. Um, If you if you know, if you've read Heroes of Olympus or are familiar with the Percy Jackson fandom, you'll probably know what I'm going to say. Um, In the Heroes of Olympus sequel series to this, we find out that Nico is gay. Um, He is forcibly outed. It's actually a very upsetting scene, the more that I think about it and the older I get. Um, But that is a thing that happens, and we find out um, in The House of Hades, one of those books. So we don't know that in this scene here. However, having that knowledge and looking at this um, conversation that Nico has with Percy about feeling accepted at camp... Even Mm -hmm. without that, this conversation that Nico has with Percy about being accepted at camp feels very coded in a particular way. Um, The way Nico talks, he says, I'm not being, I'm never going to be accepted at camp. They won't accept my father at Olympus. Why would they accept a son of Hades at Camp Half-Blood? They don't even have a, he, he doesn't say this, but it's like, they don't even have a cabin for us there. Like, I'm a child of the big three and I'm never going to find a home here, even though everyone else here is like me. Allegedly. Everyone else here is quote unquote like me. Right. Right. Even though nobody would say it like that. Yes. Justice for Nico, man. 
And I think for those who are familiar with the Percy Jackson universe and those who are familiar with Nico in particular, I think this scene hits differently or even more so than I think maybe it was originally written. I don't know. I don't know how much about Nico Rick knew when he was writing this, right? Like sometimes you don't learn things about your character until later on in the writing process. Right. But it's definitely here. It, like it feels very here in this scene in particular. Can I and, oh, sorry. go ahead? No, keep going. I was just going to say I'm being vague on purpose. Can I go back into the spoilers a bit? Sure. So spoilers again. Yeah. Spoilers alert. Spoilers. Skip ahead if you need to. Uh, so Nico is gay and Nico is getting his own book coming out, right? The sun and the star. And it's about him Mm -hmm. and another character. And his boyfriend, you can say that. Yes. His boyfriend. We love him. Uh, technically he's glow in the dark boyfriend. (laughs) Whenever people say that, I know that is something that is really said in the books. But whenever people say that, I just think of Despicable Me when Gru like cracks the minion and shakes it like a glow stick. (laughs) (laughs) That is not the image I thought you were going to conjure, but it is very funny. But what I was going to say is that Marco Shiro was approached by Rick Riordan to help him write the Nico book. And one of the reasons was that Rick wanted an author who is queer to write a queer character. Right. And I think that that shows a lot of genuineness on Rick's part of wanting to do well by the fans and do what is right. Yeah. I strongly agree. I'm also going to add, like, the bar is on the floor, but the fact that he still, like, exceeded the bar is... right. Worth mentioning. 100%. Just as much as we talk about authors doing things wrong and writing characters wrong and not doing their research or not having sensitivity readers, I think we should also celebrate when authors do things right. Especially when, I don't want to say especially when, but like particularly when it's an author who could probably quote unquote get away with doing it wrong. Like, Mm -hmm. Like someone like Rick Riordan, he's got enough fame. He's got enough fans. He could easily just be like, yeah, I'll just do it myself. Like, they don't care. Like, and if people do care, who cares? Like, forget them. But he actually said, like, the fact that he's willing to find someone else to, to to do the work. Yeah. I think is very notable. Rachel, do you have anything else to say about Nico? I love him. He's the baby. He is a baby. He's just a baby. What about Daedalus? What do we have to say about Daedalus? First half of the book, hate him. By the end of the book, I love him. And by the time he is dying, I am sobbing. Yes. I would actually say right up until he like returns to Camp Half-Blood for the final battle, I hate him. I like him when we're in the workshop and he starts fighting with with the gang. Okay, that's fair. I kind of forgot that was a thing that existed, even though we talked about it. But that's when I kind of like him. I'm not, like, upset yet, but when he voluntarily, like, is like, I'm going to make sure that they cannot get in this way. Right. That's when it gets to me. Yeah, because the Labyrinth is tied to Daedalus' life force, so Daedalus realizes that if 
if they want to prevent Kronos's army from ever using the labyrinths to get into Camp Half-Blood again, the labyrinth needs to be destroyed. And the best way to do that is for Daedalus to pass on finally to the underworld. Mm-hmm. And that is what happens. Like he sacrifices his life in order to make that happen, which is honestly, that's huge. So far, I would argue that the only like good adults we've seen in the story are like regular mortals, like Percy's mom, Sally, and like Paul to some extent. And, like maybe Chiron, I guess he might count even though he's immortal. But like most of the adults we've seen in these books are kind of crappy. Let's be real. Yeah. They are at best questionable and at worst, like, garbage. Many tortilla slaps. All the tortilla slaps. But Daedalus, he's kind of one of the first mythical characters, legendary characters, I guess I would say, who really kind of steps up. Mm -hmm. I think he's one of the first that we see really take responsibility not that characters like Chiron are irresponsible, but I just, I think sometimes I'll, I'll just use Chiron as the example. Cause he's at the forefront of my mind. He's a good character and he does his best by his campers. I think as he can, but he still, I think sometimes fails in his duty to protect them. I think that's fair. And so does Daedalus. But I think he also recognizes he can do something big here that will protect the heroes who have come after him. Even if he thinks they might be a lost cause, he's decided. But it's still worth fighting for, even if our chances aren't great. Agreed. And he does that for them. And he takes responsibility for, if I had, if I hadn't been so prideful, if I hadn't been so afraid of death, like this wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a really nice ending for him. I think by the end of the book, he shows a true child of Athena-esque vibe to him. Yes. Because what is it that Annabeth says to him? We're not supposed to be just clever. We're supposed to be wise. I think this is finally wisdom coming through. Seeing him make changes in his life and be better. Yes. Speaking of characters changing and being better, um, Dionysus also kind of changes by the end of this book. Yes. Like, uh, we don't see a ton of him because he's been off um, doing some Olympian duties, but mm-hmm. he comes back to camp at the end of the book and he heals um, Chris Rodriguez, the camper who um, went mad in the labyrinth because Dionysus or Mr. D's specialty is in madness. Or mental illness, I think, would be another way you could put it. Um, and Percy's like, what would you do that for? And Dionysus is like, I don't know, maybe I was just being nice, okay? Dionysus gets <laughs> very defensive. He does get very defensive, and I think it's perfect. But, like, remember how Hephaestus was saying... Um, Hephaestus earlier said the gods can change, and he's the first god to really say that even though he's saying it in a negative way of like, yeah, the gods can change. They can change their mind about how they feel about you and throw you off a mountain. Yep. Um, But here Dionysus is really the first God. I think we do see change. I for sure agree. And in a positive way, no less. So I, I just like, it's a really nice touch and I'm glad that 
Chris is better, and I'm glad he and Clarice are happy. As much as Clarice is ever happy, I think. (laughs) Yes. And this might be a hot take, might not be a hot take. You can tell me because you've been in the fandom longer. Or maybe Mm -hmm. it's an idea that's never crossed uh, anyone's mind before. But I think part of the reason Dionysus decided to help Chris was because he lost his son. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Glad we're on the same page there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because Dionysus does have twins at Camp Half-Blood. Yes. And during that last battle siege, one of them dies. Yeah. He has twin sons. Their names are Castor and Pollux. And I'm really forgetting which one of them dies now. Please hold. Should have written it down. I think it's Castor. I think it is too. Um, oh, wait. Yeah, Castor is the twin who dies and Pollux is still alive. Um, and when they have the funeral after the final, after the Battle of the Labyrinth, um, well, first of all, Percy says, that night was the first time I actually saw camp burial shrouds used on bodies and it is not something I wanted to see again. The um, head counselor from the Apollo cabin, Lee Fletcher, um, died in the battle um, and Castor dies. His brother Pollux um, tries to say something about him at the funeral and he he just can't. And uh, there's a couple other um, unnamed uh, demigods who also lose their lives in the battle, but those are the two that really... Um, that Percy mentions by name. Are you okay? They're just babies. They are. I know earlier in the recording, I said that I would have stuff to say about the funerals. And like, I still do. But at the same time, it's like, it just hurts so much. It hurts because I think this is, Aside from Bianca and Zoe dying in the last book, like, Bianca, we think, well, she made her choice. And it's unfortunate, but it's kind of a fluke. Zoe is upsetting, but, you know, she's lived a good long life. She died a hero. She knew going into this mission that she was probably going to die. But then, like, you get to this battle and it's like, like, these demigods did not choose this life. They didn't choose, they are just trying to live their lives out in peace at the only place that is really safe for them. And yet, because of the mistakes of their parents, they've had this responsibility they didn't want thrust upon them and they lose their lives because of it. And they're just kids. Seriously, like, they are, I mean, anywhere from, like, 7 to maybe 21 if they're a head counselor and they've been there for a while. I like to think that the smallest of the demigods were kept out of the battle. I mean, yes. But um, Percy mentions that Castor was 17. Um, Lee Fletcher is probably around that age, if not slightly older. Um Luke is probably like 19 19, to 21-ish. Luke was 19 in book one. 
wasn't he? Okay. Maybe. I don't actually know. I uh, For some reason, that's in my head, so I'm going to go with mm-hmm. it. So book- Percy says he looks like a college kid when yes. he first meets Luke. So book two, he would be about 20. Mm-hmm. Book three, he would be 20, 21. So at this point, okay. Luke would be 21 probably 21 or 22. Yeah. Between 20 uh, yeah, and 22. Yeah, that makes sense. So I would say Lee Fletcher is probably around that age. He might be slightly younger. We don't actually know that much about him. Well, like, so Beckendorf is... But he's a head counselor. Right. Beckendorf is about 17. Yeah, because he's... No. Yes. Beckendorf is... Oh, no, in this book, he's 17. You're right, you're right. Yeah, because in the next book... Because in the next book, he's, like, 18, because he's getting ready to go to college in the fall. So, kind of the long story short is that these are still just babies and they are dying and I would, uh, and I'm gonna swear, I would bitch slap Kronos and I would bitch slap Luke. And Mm -hmm. I would bitch slap Luke Kronos. Lunis? Probably you're not coming up with a ship name for Kronos and Luke. I don't like this. Not necessarily a ship name, but a combined name because they're in one body. Am I wrong? No, I don't like it, though. That doesn't mean I have to like it. Just because you're right doesn't mean I have to like it. I can be proud in my wrongness. Do you know what I want? This is really specific. Tell me. I want Uncle Rick. You want Uncle Rick? To give us a short story. Mm-hmm. From Elysium. Hmm. So we can see all of the heroes that have died throughout the series living happily. Hey, if any of you fanfic writers have a fix-it fic out there <laughs> with all of the heroes living happily in Elysium, please send it our way. Our email address is notthebookexpert at gmail.com, or you can find us on any social media, basically, at bookexpertpod. Um, that was not sarcasm, by the way. Please send us your fix. Or if you like are a reader and you're just like, hey, I have a great fic about this, please send it our way. We will read it. And probably cry tears of joy. Yes, most likely. In case it wasn't apparent, crying is okay. Yes. Sometimes you just have emotions and you got to express them. We do, in fact, cry quite regularly while we are reading. Mm-hmm. To the we, also cry- <laughs> we also cry quite regularly while we record, but you don't always hear that. I thought you were just going to end it with, we do cry quite regularly, full stop, period. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> I did already cry once today. I finished a book in class today, and one of my students had to check in on me because he thought I wasn't okay. And when I pointed at my phone because I was reading an ebook, he just went, Ah, you finished a book, didn't you? In your student's defense, I guess, you did text me and say, Maggie, I am not okay. <laughs> so clearly you were not okay. And the student was. Correct in checking in on you. Yes, being very nice. He was... I got a cash hair in my mouth. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is saying in the podcast. I don't know why that sent me over the edge. (laughs) He was displaying more emotional intelligence than several of his peers, so I appreciated that. Your student, not your dog. Correct. My dog is a bit of a dummy head sometimes. He just walked by me. 
Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> if my student is listening, which I don't even think he knows I have a podcast, I appreciate you checking in on me. And now at this point, Maggie, do you have any other thoughts about Battle of the Labyrinth? I think we've said all there needs to be said about Battle of the Labyrinth. And Rachel, I am so excited to read Percy Jackson and the Demigod Files with you um, because there's some really good short stories in here. And I just reread it recently. I'm going to make our notes about it. And I think we're going to have a lot of these are all fun and not mostly mostly not upsetting. Correct. Not as traumatizing. So I have nothing else to say. I have nothing else to say either. Thank you for listening to this episode, everybody. We will see you next time. We will see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Not the Book Expert, But She Is. You can find us online at bookexpertpod.wordpress.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at bookexpertpod. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a review on our website or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll see you again soon.